John Deere does not want to be your mom and pop tractor dealership that you can walk in and have a nice conversation with the parts guy. They want you to be able to walk into their dealerships like you walk into an Apple store to buy an iPhone. And they want you to leave buying something more than you expected because that is the model that they are trying to create as a business. If we keep saying, John Deere, you're the best, you're the best, you are the best, you are the best, well, eventually they get to know that. And that's where they're starting to get you now is, okay, they know they're the best, and they know they have a grip on so many customers that they can now start to slack them. I would think so, yeah. They need to distribute a lot of white across the track. Yeah, but they do. They suck at roading. Yeah, they do. They're <laughs> definitely bad at roading. They're, you know, they they are a, a deal on, uh, especially like to work headlands. They kick that berm up or whatever. Yeah. I think even on the, you know, we've we've had a two track before. Even on unworked headlands, they berm some. So yeah. it's just something you have to live with if you have a two track. And they on those elevation changes too. They can ride rough, you know. Yeah. So, okay. Welcome to the Agriculture Podcast, guys. Welcome back to another episode. Podcast two. Yeah, podcast two. The Real Agriculture Podcast is actually like podcast ten or eleven now, or something like that. So, yeah, make everyone says make it through the first ten podcasts, and you should be pretty good to keep going. So we did it. We made it. So that's nice. <laughs> it's fun to do. I enjoy it. Uh, I think I like it almost as much as making. Uh, and watching videos. Yeah. I don't know. I'm uh I like making videos. I like I like seeing uh I like seeing the views go up. I mean that's if uh, I was as talented as a photographer as you, I'd probably like it. Too. Yeah, no. <laughs> I but I do like podcasts. We were telling I was telling Zach earlier, it's like there's no other setting where you get a uh uh there's no other setting where you just get to sit down and people get to listen to you talk for 45 minutes to an you hour. You just ramble. The only other the only other people who get that privilege is pastors. That's right. <laughs> Where people just get to sit down and they got to listen to you till the end. I mean, you guys can click <laughs> off whenever you want, but yeah, there is a there is a joy in just being able to sit and ramble and talk and so hopefully learn something too. So, this week we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, uh colors of machinery. <laughs> um I am a very big critic of a certain large green tractor manufacturer <laughs> and i'm not doing it just to pick on them i'm just doing it because i have an issue i have an issue with people swearing by one thing because it's what they do and it's just it's like i i hear all the time john deere's the best john deere is better than everyone else john <laughs> deere makes the best this that's not as good as a deer get that off of my instagram feed why do i see and i i, I see stuff like this and it, it it's all the time it is people I, I'll, I'll tell you that too for my instagram uh real views every single video i have done that has gotten over a hundred thousand views i'm pretty sure every single one has had a green tractor in it it's hard to beat the green tractor it they do look good i'll give them that um yeah so we're going to talk about that this week uh tractors are a big deal uh they are where Farmers, especially in our, especially in the Midwest, spend a very large chunk of their time farming. You know, it's not everything, but during planting, spraying, and harvest, 
that piece of machinery is a mach- piece is a machine that you spend a lot of time in. So it is a big choice, and it is a very expensive choice. I mean, there's a million dollar combine sitting right behind us right now. That's like that machine has to be a good machine for it to make sense financially. And so it is a it, it's a big topic because it is something that can make or break a farm if you are dumb about it. It definitely. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, they're they're a part of the asset management of the farm and. Um, you know, it's hard for me to uh, be super sit here and be super critical of John Deere when everything I own is John Deere. We um, are sitting <laughs> within thirty feet. There are one, two, three, four pieces of John Deere equipment. Yeah. We're very heavy. You know, we're very heavy investors in John Deere, and uh, you know, our um, fleet is. You know, we we don't have a hundred percent John Deere, but it's pretty close. Um, it's overall been a good company for us uh to be with you know we've we've had a lot of success with them um but over the you know the course of time we were case men at one time and have just uh transitioned into the into john deere um i still have good friends uh that are running the case brand and um and you know one of my very good friends is a dealer so uh he was actually supposed to be with us this week and uh, decided to take a trip to Florida instead. So, <laughs> Case guys, am I right? That's right, case guys. I'm just kidding. The John Deere guys are heading to Mexico right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, like I, I have met successful farm owners with every color of machine. Sure, yeah. You don't have to have one, uh, one type of machine or another to be extremely successful in the space. Um, it, a lot of it's about preference and... Uh, also about uh, your dealer network that you have in your certain area. You know, certain um, John Deere has a pretty strong dealer network nationwide, but every area, every region has a very strong specific dealer network that might be stronger than the uh, you know than its competitor in the region. So, a lot of times that dictates what the farmers in the region are using. Here, it just happens. Uh, that Hudson um, and then Greenway, which are two very large dealers in the southern tier, um, have very strong dealer networks. So a lot of uh, people have come on to that, uh, you know, have adapted to the use of the John Deere machinery here because of those dealers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way it is. You know, like if you have a, a strong network of case dealers in your region, you're more likely to run that case because uh, that dealer can provide the service and the parts that you need to keep you going, which is ultimately the most important part aspect of that machinery is it's running in the field and not setting broke down at the lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... Yeah, that's the biggest thing. To, I mean, there's there are spots in the U.S. that I have personally been to where I see more red tractors than I do green tractors, and a lot of that is just because, like, I, specifically Titan Machinery was the dealership had a very strong presence in that area, and they just they just had enough stores within a certain radius that they were able to support a large amount of customers in a satisfactory manner that the John Deere guys could, that the Agco guys could. And that's a, that that everyone I've ever talked to who is serious about running a farm (laughs) will say the same thing. You know, if, if that dealership down the road can get me a tech faster 
than this other dealership down the road, I'm going to consider buying those tractors. And that's a big deal for a lot of people because stuff breaks all the time. For sure. Brand new stuff breaks all the time. <laughs> it's just part of the, uh, it's part of the, the industry, like your big machinery or little machinery, if you use it is going to break. And, uh, you know, it's an industry that's, uh, based a, a lot on timing and uh, so ultimately, the ability for that equipment to run uh, hinges on the dealer and the part supply. And if you can't effectively supply parts or service and the machine won't run, then the farmer is going to go to a space uh, that he feels like where he can get that service and part network that he needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's what's dictated a lot of, uh, like, the reason we went deer here in this far area of western Kentucky, we're at the very far edge of Kentucky here, close to Illinois and Missouri, but ultimately we still have to cross bridges and rivers to get there. Um, you know, we don't have a close case dealer, um, or for that matter, any other dealer besides John Deere. And so ultimately it's pushed us into that, uh, you know, manufacturer. And so this is where I started to get a little fired up. Just because Deer has the best dealer network does not mean they are the best tractor or the best <laughs> tractor company. I, I, I'm saying this as someone who really cares about the free market, and I care about people not getting complacent and doing a better job. If you talk to me at all, you know I am all I'm. I'm very passionate about doing the right thing and being an integral person. Like I am a very I, I, I will do what needs to be done to get the things done for the sake of them needing to be done. Um, and so when a company like John Deere has gotten to the size they are and has a hold, like, you know, I can, I can say looking at Neil right now, John Deere has a hold on Neil's farm because Neil doesn't have another option right now. And, That's right. And you could, you could, there, there is a way to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. But realistically, it, realistically, realistically and financially, Neil's best option and really the only option is to go with John Deere. You know, this is, and this is what John Deere has been so good at is not only, you know, like they've over time have, have moved me into almost a 100% John Deere fleet. It's a big fleet and it's not something you could switch out overnight, but they've also successfully combined technology into their fleet and their technology, uh, you know, and the precision space is very user-friendly. So um, with, you know, they've brought that technology onto on board all their, uh, basically our entire fleet. And so we use their technology to manage our farm day-to-day. -day. And with the technology, along with the investment we have in the machinery, you're right, it's almost impossible for us. Maybe not impossible, but next to impossible for us to switch to a, you know to a different manufacturer not to say it can't be done um like oh, i guess over the course of time we could transition back into case or Claus or new holland or whatever uh that manufacturer might be but it would be extremely costly and difficult for us to switch and deer knows that mm -hmm. i mean it's not lost on them you know i think that's part of the reason I heard you talking about them calling themselves a technology company, and I think this is part of the reason um, that they've done that. John Deere does not want to be your mom and pop 
tractor dealership that you can walk in and have a nice conversation with the parts guy. They want you to be able to walk into their dealerships like you walk into an Apple store to buy an iPhone. And they want you to leave buying something more than you expected because that is the model that they are trying to create as a business, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that as a business. With that said, my biggest... And this is kind of like one of those points that I push back on with John Deere guys who swear by, I bleed green. I love John Deere. They're just the best. It's like, they're only the best until they're the best right now because yeah, they have a lot of technology. If we keep saying John Deere, you're the best, you're the best, you are the best, you are the best. Well, eventually they get to know that. And that's where they're starting to get to now is, okay, they know they're the best and they know they have a grip on so many customers that they can now start to slack on things. I have heard multiple multiple stories of not just john deere dealers but john deere corporate not making things right the way that john deere as a company used to stand by there are there are guys who swear by john deere because for a long time the company as itself and the dealers made a really big effort to do the right thing and take care of their customers because they knew hey we're we are the american tractor company and we're going to take care of american farmers i do not see that in the way john deere acts today based on what I hear from people who work for John Deere, based on people who buy a lot of John Deere, based on dealers who work with John Deere, based on smaller dealers who are basically being pressured to be bought out by bigger dealers right now. No one's going to talk about that if they own Deere. I can talk about that because I don't own a single piece of John Deere machinery and I don't need to worry about them getting mad at me. If John Deere, if you want to get mad at me, get mad at me. Pushing your smaller dealers to be bought out by larger dealers and basically saying get big or go home is really just rude i mean it's fine i guess because you're in charge i would tell those dealers to drop john deere and go pick up a different tractor brand because that is so that just drives me absolutely insane to to think of people who have probably been especially i i know of small town john deere dealerships one to three stores very low that have been loyal to John Deere for sometimes 70 plus years. And to have corporate come in and say, basically you either need to be opening more stores or selling out to another large chain is a huge problem, guys. That is like, that's that is monopolistic mindset of, all right, we are going to now conglomerate everything into a giant John. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. No, but I I totally agree. I mean, you, you've definitely seen it, especially post COVID. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm not. I'm not picking on John Deere here. I, you I, know, I, I have. Am. I, I, am. <laughs> I have a lot of good friends that uh, work for the uh, for the corporate uh, portion of the business and for the dealer network portion of the business. And there's still a lot of good people left in the oh, corporation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, I, I can I can say sitting here that if John Deere, my my entire town's economy is dependent on John Deere, and a large portion of my close friend group is employed by John Deere. Okay. So I, I say all that saying, I, I say that all saying in the best wishes. I I want I say all these things because John Deere needs to be pushed to do better for the sake of not just them as a company and their customers, but also as someone whose friends would lose their jobs if John Deere like failed. No, I, and I totally <laughs> agree with this, and that that's where I. Um, you know, that's where I'm at with them is I know there's a lot of great individuals left within the dealer networks and in the company. It's the overall company mindset as a whole that I think has deteriorated some post-COVID and maybe even started pre-COVID just because of their dominance in the market. They know 
that they're the big dog on the block and they can bully people around. And I've heard some horror stories, uh, with, uh, with, the the, basically the corporate portion of the company over the last couple of years. So yes, uh, customer service, or I guess, uh, the, the care for the customer has been reduced through the dominance of the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, yeah, remember that as a publicly traded company and as John Deere being, I think they're in the Fortune 500. The John Deere is a massive company. Massive. They are a publicly traded company, which means they have not only customers to answer to and a corporate boardroom to answer to, they have people with deep pockets to answer to. And if that those people, like as someone who used to own shares in John Deere, um, I don't own them anymore. Anyways, as some, like as someone's like, yeah, I would like as a stockholder to have returns on that. Like, I that's totally understandable. To cut corners to meet those demands is something that's like really hard for me. Yeah, grasp. and I hate to see that. You know that one of the reasons that they've uh, been able to, to, well, I mean, their dealer network is part of the reason. But I mean, one of the reasons uh, that they have such a good name and such a large business is because of their quality control over the years. They created a great product over the years that was very reliable and a very uh, high, you know, spec on quality. And then as uh, their dominance, you know, has grown, that whatever you want to call it, quality control, I guess, uh, has been reduced i don't know if it's from the quality of the workforce because um they're not you know paying those people as good as they should or um just because the quality of the employees has overall been reduced due to covid or whatever whatever the circumstances are that has caused that to happen ultimately the product quality has been reduced and it's uh and you know with with that uh, there's been a lot of downtime on a lot of the new machines over the last few years, and they're basically like, we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, they may cover the warranty, but other than that, they're they're not going to do a whole lot for it. You know, we're used to, if if there was a quality issue, they were going, jumping over their self, trying to remedy it, you know, to make sure it was right, and a lot of that has gone by the wayside. Yeah, so... Okay, we'll, we'll stop bashing John Deere. I'm going to start. Let's put some other cents on to uh, just other brands of equipment. I personally am biased because I have worked with Fent and some other portions of Agco and Agco dealerships. And so I am a little partial to them just as business because they treat me well. And I'm actually a really – I'm also – and I say this all also as just someone who's a big fan of the product. Um, if you guys have never ridden in a Fent tractor before – Find your closest dealer and make the drive and go drive one of their Fent one cabs around. Its ride control matches the new John Deere just fine, and I'd argue it's even more comfortable. Um, all that to say is, guys, the best way for John Deere to make better machinery and to have better dealers supporting you and for the company as a whole to improve is for you to know that there are other options and it's okay for John Deere to know that you have other options to look at. Um, competition is one of the best things for a good product. The best, I, I think, of the hunting industry. Hunting 
has a couple big names in it that are major manufacturers, but they all make pretty good products. And across the board, you can go to any major hunting brand and you can say, I'm probably going to get a good product that's going to match the other competitors, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, competition makes, you know, makes every industry better and uh, hunting along with, you know, equipment manufacturers, you need competition in the space. John Deere needs solid competitors. Yeah, you know? and, and that and I, 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 I'm starting to see it, and some people don't believe me. Fent tractors are gaining a lot more traction, I think people are realizing. I know we just had a brand new uh, Ziegler dealer open up in near our area, um, and their sole purpose is to sell Kloss and Fent and Massey machines. That is their job. And, and you talk to guys, you talk to guys who demo them. There are, there's still, especially where I live, you know, with John Deere's factory being right around the corners, like there are just so many deer guys, but there are a lot of guys who have been demoing fence, demoing Kloss combines, demoing Fent combines, demoing Massey tractors that are really like what they're seeing. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, here locally, we have Miratech, which is in southeast Missouri, and then Ag Revolution, which I think is in Hopkinsville, which is our Agco Fent. I think they even, uh, and Miratech deals with Kloss as well. Um, so um, you're seeing, you know, those people come into the market space. Uh, Miratech is a European dealership that has moved uh, to southeast Missouri, and they're trying to make, carve a niche out, you know. And uh, they're just getting started here in these areas. But, like, our Ag Revolution dealer out of Hopkinsville, I have a uh, friend that just got hired on, you know, to be a salesman into this area, and we've never had a salesman previously. Mm-hmm. So they're making a play in the market space. Yeah, they, the, and that's something for sure that I, I'm seeing is there's a lot, there's a big push for Fent tractors especially, and Guys, go ride in one. They are really sweet machines. There is a price tag to them. They're about what a new deer costs. They are not the. They're not going to be a cheaper option. I'm no, they're gonna, the equivalent. Yeah, they're the equivalent. With that said, they are engineered with efficiency in mind. Um, I don't know how fuel usage actually compares to from everyone. From what everything I've seen and people I've talked to, they say they're saving money on fuel and they are gaining efficiencies in a lot of areas just because the machines are designed for a european market that is super regulated and you need to pinch every bit of profit you can out of it and so not only that also i i just started thinking about emissions stuff i mean if you live in a cold area i'd be thinking about fent tractors just because they have been designed to work with emission standards that have been in europe a couple years longer than the uss so that's just a little plug for them but also i mean Massey tractors are the same way. Massey's owned by Agco now, but Massey Ferguson's kind of like the, I think has a real opportunity to be the budget nice option. Like they are, they're cheaper than what a Fent tractor would be or a John Deere tractor would be, even Case tractor would be. And they're not going to be all, all the frills, but they get the job done and they're a new machine too. You can go buy a low hour Massey for way cheaper than you could buy any other brand. And it's going to have a comfortable cab, you know, not as nice. It's not going to have your massaging leather seats that you guys all want, but it's going to get the job done and it's going to do it in an efficient manner. And it's just the same thing. It's like, you don't have to switch your entire fleet over, but it's like, Hey, I, I tell people this, especially if they have, if they have a need for smaller loader tractors or auger tractors, like that's a real good opportunity. It's like, Hey, if you have a machine that's aging out, get one on your farm for a couple weeks, you know, see if you can get a demo for a couple weeks, just to do things like that. Like, Especially, especially dealerships that are trying to sell machines, they are trying to get demos on farms because demos sell. You talk to any salesman, 
demos are what sell machines. Yeah, and that's why that X9 Combine is probably sitting there, you know. Yeah. Um, demos, uh, you get to see that stuff operate and um, to see the efficiency you can gain from it, and then it winds up on the farm, you know. It does sell equipment. And, you know, I think the, the Fent here locally, uh, they have some attractive leases available. They are wanting to get machinery out there. Um, so, you know, as this is the thing is John Deere, or if you're a big case person, you know, that a lot of times they'll, they'll follow one or the other deer and case, um, you know, as they, uh, price themselves out of the market and there's an attractive fent lease, uh, over there, you know, uh, there's going to be some more adapt, uh, adaptability to that region from that, you know, cost-effective lease and and the other thing is to based on the reaction that your deer or case rep might give you for demoing another machine that can really tell you where that dealership's priorities are as as your dealer if the john deere dealer gets really offended that you have another machine on your farm and they start servicing you more poorly because that does happen if if they look at you and say oh man like we got to be cautious guy like maybe we should pull back on our you know our outreaches this guy because there are dealers that really take care of their core customers like you there are plenty and if if there are if the, if there are people who are considering other machinery, that that dealer has the option to either increase their like capacity to try to care for that customer, or they can reduce that. And if they reduce that, well, maybe they don't want to be the dealership that you're working with for your whole fleet, you know, because because that means their priorities are you as just a financial number on their spreadsheet. And if you can't, if they can't handle you taking a demo, then they probably can't, <laughs> they probably don't actually want to take care of you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know as the other manufacturers as well or dealers, but I know like with John Deere, you know, market share is a big part of their business model. And, you know, like if you have uh, 75 people in your area running a John Deere combine um, and, and you have 20 new combines, coming into that area every year you need a large market share to be able to absorb that uh you know rolling of the fleet uh you've got to be you've got to have a market for those used machines if you're a dealer and uh so they hate to see those other manufacturers if they've soft up 80 percent of the market share they don't want to lose five percent because there goes their market for their used machine you know so their goal is to maintain that market share that they've accumulated over time yeah and that's why you i think that's why you see such hatred uh especially in those large dealer networks for an alternate manufacturer because ultimately it does carve a space out of their market share and then it limits their ability to move their used equipment yeah which it's 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 hard you know if, if i was running that business it'd probably be pretty hard for me to understand something like like it'd be really easy for me to be frustrated but from the long-term standpoint it's like would you rather have that have that ability to have a total monopoly or would you rather be able to say all right and this is just also how different people think i'm very much like all right i have the option to complain about this or do a better job and so that's that's where the rubber hits the road is like yeah you do need that market share so are you gonna are you gonna up bonuses for salesmen are you gonna say hey like what are your incentives for salesmen or like what are you gonna do to help take care of those customers better to keep them you know and and ideally everyone wins because your business is operating better and more efficiently your customers are hopefully happier because you're treating them better because hopefully they might be getting some better deals and they might you would you rather have a short term hey i'm gonna make you know a couple grand 
on this trade-in or selling selling a used machine here? Would you rather be able to say, yeah, I've had this customer who's spent millions with us over the course of 20 years because we took really good care of them? Which would you rather have? Which is more work, taking care of that customer for 20 years or constantly hunting for new customers that you burn bridges with? Every yeah. Everyone's going to say, yeah, we'd much rather have any business owner tell you, like, we would rather have one. This is something you guys should know if you work in marketing. The less effort you have to put into each sale, the better your business is running because that sales time is the most stressful. It's a lot of work. You spend a lot of time doing free work that could also just totally like in the end, like you could just not get paid for any of that. So if you have one customer that you're like, I want to keep working with you and you just have five core customers, you want to have five core customers who are going to repeatedly buy from you than 20 customers who only pop in every once in a while because that is far easier admin-wise, work-wise, and stress-wise to deal with. And any, any business owner tell you that because it just... There's a reason nobody likes working at Walmart for a very long time. It's just because there is such like a, you have to deal with so many different people all the time in so many different capacities that it just wears people out. Like it doesn't work as well. That's why people like companies like Trader Joe's function so much better. It's like they have a much smaller customer base and you typically have way more repeat customers buying the same things. So, so the management for companies like that is way lower because they don't have to deal with as many customer complaints, as many problems, and staff stick around a lot longer because they like working there because it's less stressful. It's just it compounds over and over and sure. over and over again. Yeah, I'm sure like uh, your your local whatever dealer you know network is, um, you know, gets very stru- frustrated with the with the corporate uh, you know part of the business because they can only uh, cover themselves. They can't cover the corporation, you know, so. Um, I'm sure it's frustrating for those dealers. Uh, like if the corporate's not do, like upholding their end, um, it's hard for the you know the dealer can make up so much, but ultimately they have to make money too. It's and if the corporation is not willing to work with the dealer network and the farmer, um, it's got to be majorly frustrating for the dealer, you know. And so, and I know deer has got to the point where they're so uh, strong financially that uh, they can pretty much, you know, throw the bird to the dealer if they want to, yeah. if they so chose. This is a this is a little bit of a side note that I I just learned recently. There are several manufacturers, not just one, that are starting to open and own their own dealerships, sometimes under different names, sometimes adjacent to these companies. There, there might be a very real possibility down the road where you are not walking into your name brand dealership of Hudson or Greenway. It's like, oh no, I'm just going to John Deere. I, you know, I don't know what John Deere will do, but I could see that happening because I know on their their goal is for like their operation center app to eventually be able to buy parts, technology, and machinery directly like apple from the app yeah. so what does that all equate to I, I i i personally was looking there are two european manufacturers that i know of that own multi-store dealership chains both in the midwest i'm not going to say their names but they are operated under different uh brand names but if you do a little bit of digging on their website you will see that they're actually owned by the corporation that manufactures that machinery because they've realized especially overseas manufacturers, like, okay, if we want the dealers to be done right, 
maybe we should just do it ourselves. And I think deer might get to that point too, where it's just, it's easier for them to say, why, why do we want to deal? And that, and that's, and I'll go back to forcing stores to be bought out. Deer's management is a lot lower when you only have to deal with a handful of really large dealership chains and you have touch points, you know, if, you know, say Hudson owns 15, 20 stores. Okay. It's a lot easier for John Deere to deal with one or two people from Hudson than those people would be individually from 15 or 20 stores. Cause now they're, you know, and that, cause that's just a lot of management sure. and on Deere's side, it's like, well, why would we want to spend so much time doing that when we really just want people to buy our machines? That's what we want. We want people to own our tractors and the easier we can make it and the less money we have to spend acquiring those customers, the better. And so if they just say, well, let's not deal with all this corporate overhead. Let's not deal with managing all these different partnerships and poor service from other people out of control. We control that. We now take the profit that all those dealers are making. And in an ideal world, they lower their prices. Yeah. But in, in, in the real world, they still charge you the same amount that the dealer would, and they just take all that profit home. And that's, I think that's what will happen. They also, these corporations know that, you know, like in the ag sector especially, you know, there's going to be a major uh consolidation of farms in the next 20 years just because our industry is so old and with that there's already a small number of farms uh or owned farms you know that are actually operating in america and once you reduce that number again by a third there's only a handful at that point and it's a lot easier to sell 30 tractors than three tractors that's right <laughs> you know those farms become very big and they purchase very in very large uh quantities and uh it's very i would think you know it it would become very easy for deer to have a option on the iphone to you know if they had no haggle pricing or whatever like it was just whatever they put it on you know like you pay this much for that option and there's no haggle uh you know and somebody can just click on their iphone and switch their fleet or trade their machine um and all the money is comes into deer's coffers and they don't have to pay a salesman or a dealer network why yeah. wouldn't they do it do you know why you know one of the reasons i think john deere claims they're a tech company why tech companies have very very large profit margins <laughs> if john deere's a tech company that needs means they need to be making 30 to 50 percent profit margin on every product you guys know how crazy 30 to 50 percent profit margin is there are only a few industries that get away with that tech industry clothing manufacturing high high-end clothing manufacturing and uh not automotive what's the other one what's another i can't very many be very many i bet you hunting's probably about that which it, I would, it, yeah, it, it would fit into the uh, high-end yeah. apparel like yeah no offense to your sitka gear there's no way that costs 150 dollars to make oh, in no. china <laughs> no for sure their stuff is uh you know is very low quality manufacturing yeah very high quality marketing yeah and so that's oh marketing that's the other one high-end high-end creative design is very profitable because you're making you know why would I, you know if you're if you're the best around you're going to charge, you, you You know, the cheap guy who's not as good can say, well, I can do that for $1,000. The guy who's really good is like, well, I'm going to do it faster, more efficient, and it's going to look way better, and I'm going to charge you 10 for it. And the profits are huge on projects like that. And so John Deere, John Deere looks, um, and I'm sure any company on the Fortune 500 is probably expected to act that way. Is like, hey, Apple has proven that they are a highly profitable company. Be like Apple. And that's my, that's my other thing is just like, John Deere, you don't need to be Apple. You can be John Deere. You have a you have 
I, you probably don't have a strong anymore. John Deere, if anyone from your corporate marketing team is listening here, you guys have a household presence name that you have a really beautiful opportunity to not mess up. <laughs> and and I as as someone who grew up outside the ag industry and has a lot of friends outside the ag industry, currently the mindset behind the general population behind the John Deere brand is no longer they are making tractors for farmers. It's a they charge a lot for their machinery and they don't let their farmers repair it. That is the narrative that has been constructed in the public's mind around John Deere. And that is not something you want. So anyone who's out there, just you have a real opportunity to turn that around the next few years or you're just going to burn a lot of bridges. So that'll be my last two cents on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. Like, uh, I think that cost them some um, some clout, you know, over the last few years with that battle uh, in the courts. So, um, you know, that along with the, you know, I think there is a negative connotation to the amount of money that these machines cost. Ultimately, um, you know, when you get down to it, they're a very smart company. They realize that um, their machines have to perform to a certain level to be able to ask a price for it. Mm -hmm. So they're not stupid enough to just put a price tag on something and not attach a value to it. Yeah, and And, and I'll, I'll never say John Deere makes bad machinery. Every John Deere machine I've ever been in, typically runs really well and i can't think of many instances where john deere's put out a product and i'm like oh yeah that product was just bad like john deere just doesn't i, I know in, i know the engineers who work on this stuff they have high bars they are trying oh, to meet when they're yeah. designing things oh and they're they're hard on themselves. you know the, the engineers that are designing this stuff are they're super intelligent the best in the world and they're very hard on themselves. ultimately one of the reason the deterioration of the uh, quality is just they are releasing so much product onto the market that they just cannot, uh, you know, effectively control all the quality aspects of it. And yeah. and then instead of, you know, this is the thing. If you're, this is where I would like to see them, uh, you know, address is, okay, I understand, like, of course, as a corporation, you're going to put as much product as you can on the market. And uh, we all know that the quality of any of these manufacturers' product, not I'm not only picking on John Deere here, I'm talking about any equipment manufacturer. Um, as they release all these products onto the market like they have over the last three or four seasons, um, and you know as a corporation that your quality control is down and you're having problems with a certain machine or a group of, of machines, uh, I would like to see those problems addressed and not just glossed over and uh, that's where i think um like john deere or case or any you know x fent you whatever you want to say um if if they would address that portion of it i think it would just it would i know it would ease the farmer's mind and it should help them in the public perspective because they'd quit getting so much negative publicity. Yeah, and you know John Deere and all. I mean, it's every it's every tractor company these days. There's been so many acquisitions in this space, and every every ag tech startup I see these days, I'm like, you're just trying to get bought by a couple big companies. You know, I see a lot of stuff like that. But there's been so much consolidation, like you're saying. You know, I look at 
John Deere. John Deere seems like they are buying some ag tech company every other week. You know, there's some Silicon Valley tech startup that developed this revolutionary X thing, and they're like, John Deere's like, we want that on our machinery. We want that on our machinery. And that that's awesome, and that is a really cost-effective way to do R&D. You know, have some other team, sure. have some other investors spend all the time and, it, you know, headache trying to develop this new product. You can come in and say, all right, you've put it nice and you've put a nice bow tie on the package for us. We're going to buy your technology and integrate with ours. Really cool, really great. But then you run into the same thing you're trying to like you do, you, you do that so many times, you start to lose some of that quality because you've gotten so caught up in releasing these new things, that these new features. And I've talked to people with at Deer about this. Like, I think there's a real threat for just a lot of bugs with everything so digital these days you know reliable machinery is super important um you know a mechanical breakdown can be fixed by you if you really needed to i mean it's pretty easy to change out a starter it's change out an alternator you know change out a turbo that's not something that takes days you know not everyone knows how to code software quite yet and so especially if john deere keeps locking down their system we start to add all these different layers of technology onto the John Deere operating system that might have been developed by a different company. There's just good. And I know John Deere has a ton of software engineers, but there's going to be a lot of integration that needs to be done. And just a lot of, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think we, we're going to see some of that deficient qualities in a lot of the tech too, just because it's, it's, it's not going to be cobbled together. It's just going to be very, you know, and I, I can talk about this coming from the software space where I use video editing software. Adobe products have been this way for a long time. Adobe has continued to just add feature upon upon feature upon feature to Adobe Premiere specifically. And I edited on Adobe Premiere for years. And Adobe is the same way John Deere is. They kind of have a corner on the software market when it comes to creative stuff. Like I've slowly started moving away, but I, I mean, I'm literally staring at two Adobe apps sitting on my home bar, my laptop right now that I literally have not found any option that I can switch to. That is like quality comparative wise. Yeah. They're just dominating the space, dominating the space. Premiere had gotten so bad though, because they had spent so much time adding feature after feature after feature that it just crashes all the time. There's so many bugs and, I know people who are still editing on it, but this other software comes around to Vinci Resolve and it doesn't have every feature that Premiere does, but what it does do is it runs reliably and I don't have to lose my work because of it. And for that reason alone, I've said, I'm going to switch over to this entirely for video work just because it's like, it's reliable and I need that. And so John Deere is probably going to run into that. And I, I know they'll figure it out. And I know Adobe's been retconning a bunch of stuff because they're like, oh shoot, we lost a bunch of customers of this. And that and that's what John Deere needs, guys. Like I tell people, not that John Deere needs to lose other customers. It's just John Deere just needs a little push. Like, hey, like just try a little harder. You know, maybe slow down a little, put some more thought into this. Like you don't have to be pushing out the million dollar machines every single year because people will run out of money eventually. You yeah, know? <laughs> and, you know, and I heard Theo Vaughn talking about this and with Joe Rogan. I think it was maybe on Joe Rogan the other day or one of the podcasts or whatever, but they were talking about a digital society and, you know, if that uh, digital platform ever went down from, uh, you know, one MP or whatever, whatever, a bug, whatever the case may be, um, it would just wreck the economy. Well, it would, you know, I would got to thinking about that. It would wreck the farming space as well. You know, like this farm is contingent on technology and the technology we have on board our machines like our planners won't even function without the gps on them you know and i was thinking the other day could i plant a crop without it well currently all i have is a four-row planner uh that you know doesn't have technology on board 
Um, Good old Armstrong auto steer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, I think the nation's crop could be in jeopardy if there was something like that where we had a technology breakdown and, like, it was across the whole industry where we didn't have uh, – we don't have low-tech equipment. This is pretty much not only on this farm. This is just across the whole agriculture space. Technology has invaded all of our equipment to the point where we can't effectively operate without it. Um, so if we were to have a huge EMP attack, how do we plant our nation's crop? I don't know. It's going to take a long time to plant this farm with a four row. I just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's, cause that's everything. Yeah, even, you know, planters used to be all mechanical. Everything was rid of it, driven off of a chain and wheels. Yeah. That's just just a ground it, drive. Just, it just worked. And now it's like electric drive, this motor there, electric fan. I mean, you literally have to put a generator on your tractor to run your planter. That is like, that's where we are at, where tractors are not producing hydraulic fluid anymore. They're just, and John Deere's new, John Deere's newest CVT is, has an electric generator built in because so much of the new John Deere stuff just runs off electricity. Yeah. My, my corn planter is, uh, you know, like it has some hydraulic functions, but it is, you know, by and large, driven by electrical power, powered on a PTO generator. Is your fan electric too on there? Uh, let's see that. I have a, uh, I have a hydraulic, you know, tank supply fan, and a vac fan that sucks the seed to the plate. But all the drives, um, you know, are electronic. So without that electrical power. Uh, you know, and they don't know how fast to spin without GPS, you know, uh, tracking their speed uh, going along the ground. So they, they have no idea how much, um, well, they, I mean, they won't even try to run without a GPS signal. So if that GPS network ever came down, the planters are basically scrap iron. So anyways, not to scare you guys, <laughs> uh, just consider planting a garden. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You know, corn's a pretty easy plant to grow in a lot of states, so. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you know, you, 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 that's why you just have to question the, well, of course, a politician's always out to line his pocket, but when you see him provoking, uh, you know, wars on foreign lands that have nuclear capabilities, you wonder what they're thinking. Oh, uh, you know, it's even... This is this is gonna have to be another podcast for another week. I was talking to someone who works for a large seed company, but not the large seed companies. Syngenta is one of the largest ag chemical and seed companies in the world. China owned. China owned. Bayer is a German owned. Very, 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 very large. Like John, De- clo- not not John Deere size. They are up there. Like if you're if you're ranking largest ag companies in the world, Bayer's got to be oh, right below possibly John Deere. They yeah, I, I would think Bayer may have the largest ag space in the world. I'm, where's my phone? They're yeah. definitely one of the largest companies in the world. Just Bayer as a whole has a, is a humongous corporation. Yeah. Anyways, so we we talk about these conspiracy theories. Do you know that pretty much every single seed company in the U.S. has some sort of license from Bayer? Well, they have to. Same with Syngenta. Every single chemical company or seed. You just have no options. All it's going to take is a (laughs) very bad day (laughs) in world politics for the entire U.S.'s ability to plant crops, spray crops, produce crops, it's it's wild. 
Yeah, technology, you know, I mean, with, uh, I see this talked about all the time on the internet, and I think uh, the layperson doesn't understand um, about it, but, um, you know, a lot of these seeds are patent protected now and have technology patents, and the farmer signs a contract with these uh, corporations, say, for Bayer for their technology, you know. Like, for instance, we grow uh, Roundup seed here, soybeans or corn. Um, you cannot say that seed uh, that you grew the prior season with that corporation. And, uh, you know, you, you know that going into the situation. You know you're, you cannot save their seed or whatever. Um, and, but, uh, if there was a situation where we had a something major like an EMP attack where a crop couldn't be grown and there is no or, uh, supply of organic seeds available and, you know, like I grow um, seed here for Bayer that is sold to farmers later on this farm, if I couldn't get my crop out in a season because of that attack, because my planters wouldn't run, so we missed a crop here. And, you know, we supply a huge amount of seed for the southern tier for Bayer. And my seed wasn't supplied to Bayer, so Bayer doesn't have a seed to sell the grower. Where does the grower grow to buy seed? There's no, <laughs> there's no place because there, it's not like organic seeds have been grown on a wide space in America, you know. So they're, you know, in that situation there might not be enough seeds available to plant a crop and so this is where i'll tie it back to we started this conversation about tractors um but guys local food systems are really important um, i just finished a book that i talked about last week uh a return to giving a damn by will harris and so once again i don't agree with everything he talks about he you know bashes industrial and big ag in a way that i don't think is always constructive but i'm also not going to tell him that his points aren't valid um will harris has built a food system and built up his local community in a way that is something that you, the u.s used to be a lot more like um and i i think about it as like man i'm i'm a really big fan of having affordable food i think that's something we absolutely need um and we can't do that without industrial ag with that said if, if uh everything went bottoms up. Will Harris is the farm. His farm is the one I want to be around because he has, he has not only created a successful business, but has created a farm entity that not only provides him with income, it also helps provide his employees with income, his employees with food. You know, it, it brings jobs to the area. You know, it's just one of these things. It's like, okay, that is a system. And he actually does talk about this in his book. He starts to go into some of that big ag stuff and how, scary it is that some of these so many of these large companies control so much he goes into calling it a resilient food system and that's a term industrial ag hasn't really caught on to marketing wise but i think it's a really good term what he has created is called a resilient system and it's very rare in the u.s you know i think we do our food system is very robust in the fact that we have a lot of food but it i think covid kind of proves it is a lot more fragile than we realize we look at he talks about that in the book too is like the big 
the big four meat packers in COVID when they had to shut down their plants. I mean, there were farmers slaughtering thousands upon thousands of pigs and chickens and cows because there was nowhere for them to go. And the, the system started to crumble. It's like, Oh shoot, that linchpin is gone from these massive companies. Where the heck do I go to buy my pork and my beef and my chicken now? Sure. And I, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that need to be addressed over the next decade here. Um, locally and in the nation is just, um, you know, and I think you will. I think farmers and ranchers are very, uh, they're industrious and they're innovative and they have a lot of ingenuity. And, um, you know, I think they're realizing a lot of these things we're talking about um, as time goes. That COVID showed them a bunch, of, a bunch of vulnerabilities to the system that we're currently in. Um, also, I think you're seeing uh, a lot of pressure from the consumer um to know where their food comes from to know how it's supplied how if it is genetically modified how it is genetically modified with all these factors i think you'll see a return um probably not to small farms but i think you'll see industrial farms like this one for instance you know because i'm already thinking in that direction um how can we generate and create local markets uh, for food produced locally. Um, so if we did get into a situation where uh, there was a large-scale um, failure of the system, that in that local niche, your community would be taken care of through your local farms because they've already been thinking in that direction and have... Uh, started to devote a portion of their production to that local market. Yeah, and I think Neil and I have talked about this in private before, but there is there's a real opportunity in the next decade for producers especially to capitalize on this. Um, and I think there's we, we've seen it we've seen the the kind of trendy region ag and kind of direct to consumer sales dominate a lot of the like small farm marketing space for a long time and and so because i work in that marketing space i see it like okay that market's really saturated but i think of i think i've talked about this in the podcast before but the uh we have a dairy in our area called hansen's dairy they have a dairy just outside of town they do a bunch of school tours you can take a tour of the dairy and they run an ice cream shop with a bunch of uh, locally grown products within that shop as well. So you can buy milk, you can buy cheese. And they have a gas station that does all those same things at a larger scale and is also a gas station. And so this local this local farmer-owned business that is just branded really well, doesn't sell nationwide, just within our bubble, does a phenomenal job of connecting with its consumers. And I can't think of any time I've ever had to see an ad for theirs on the internet which is crazy. Like I, you just know who they are because you live in the community and that's sure. really cool. And I think there's a huge opportunity for that in so many different areas for those things to exist. You know, I, every time I try, I love to use Nashville as an example cause it's my, it's a, you know, we're very close to the Nashville Metro and I get to travel into the city a lot and I see a lot of, you know, trendy urban consumers there and I know that if I was to come with a locally grown, sustainably sourced product, I could be very successful in that market, you know, just because you go up there and you see people that are craving that type of product. 
So if you're a small producer or not a producer yet, and you're like, where can I carve a niche out? I think this is a niche, you know. Yeah. I think um, I think there's the for a long time farmers markets have been a thing, and farmers markets are they're trendy. But I think there's I think what you're talking about is like I don't think it's going to be a bunch of small people like a small operations. I think it could start out that way, but I could very easily see becoming kind of like what Will Harris is. And we got to have that guy on the podcast. I'm going to get a hold of him for sure. I, that'd be such a cool guy to have on. Um, his operation has grown to thousands upon thousands of acres and hundreds of employees. Like that's a really cool thing that to is. see. And they're still able to do the farmer market style markets, but all under one ceiling. And I think there's just a certain level of a lot of people don't go to farmer's markets because it's just, I don't want to say it's stressful. It's just a lot to walk around and choose who do I want to buy from? Who's this from? Who's this grown by? Like, there's just so many different options that you kind of get overwhelmed by buyer's choice. There needs to be, and I think this is where savvy business people who also are farmers and vice versa, farmers who are also savvy business people have this opportunity to capitalize on like a local farm store where it's like, Hey, we produce a lot of the stuff that goes in the store and maybe we bring, you know, there, there is a place to go like Walmart, not as big as Walmart, obviously, but there's a place to go that, you know, it's like, okay, I can know the people who grew this food live within like a two hour radius a year. It's like, okay, two hour radius is a reasonable enough time to get food fresh from one part of the state to another Nashville, two hours away. That's a reasonable amount of time to draw a two hour circle around Nashville. What crops could I get to a store from here from local producers or what operations could I possibly buy one day to help produce this crop? And so there's this beautiful opportunity as consolidation continues to happen or for people who want to get in, this is as much as it's a stressful time to be getting into agriculture, there's a lot of opportunity right now. I, we forget about that so much. It's like, this is the most like precarious time to jump into running a farm operation. With that said, there's a real opportunity to be really good at it. There is, there, there's a huge opportunity for ag in the next decade. Um, you know, especially into these niche markets or these uh, fresh produce markets, and and hey, it's not only uh, it's not only food that can be produced. There's lots of uh, lots of different agriculture products that can be supplied to, yeah, to this same market. Beef tallow is the one that's real trendy right now. It's like apparently great skin moisturizer and super good for a bunch of other things like beef tallow. Like that's made out of excess fat from cows and hides. Like that's crazy. Like yeah, yeah. There's yeah, tons of tons of market potential, tons of products uh, to be potentially marketed to the consumer that is actively searching for that type of product. So, yeah, we got to do another podcast on this one. Yeah, I yeah. Well, we can't give them all our business ideas, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> we don't let someone else steal that. I'm just kidding. No, there is yeah, there is so much opportunity out there and. We started this podcast talking about John Deere. <laughs> yeah, and we've strayed off into uh, niche ag. But this is the point of the podcast. Like, we don't know a lot, but we know enough to have opinions about it, <laughs> or we know enough to ramble about it. And, guys, like, this is, like, I think the reason Neil and I enjoy doing this is because we're both really opinionated, but also we're dreamers. We think about we, we think about 10 years down the road probably more than some people do, and maybe more than is reasonable as my wife tells me <laughs> i'm a little too far in the future to forget what's going on in the present um, I, i'm the same way but you know there's a real opportunity not only for you as a listener to get involved in ag if you're not in it now but also if you are in ag it's like hey like it is an incredibly 
terrifying time to take on risk. Interest rates are high. Farmland is as expensive as it's been. Machinery is as expensive as it's ever been. There is also a really restless consumer market out there that is really also anxious about the world and really nervous about what's going on. And I think there is a beauty in the security of what agriculture is supposed to offer of like, Hey, like there's a real opportunity you have to connect with people that really want to know they have food to buy from. You know, there's, I think the conservative community, the conservative kind of homesteading slash prepper community right before COVID was like, Oh, you're crazy for doing all that. Like, why do you have so many candy jars in your basement? Or like, why are you trying to buy some land to like raise animals? Now, even sane people are like, man, that's just like that's that wasn't a bad idea back yeah, then, was that, it? You you don't you don't hear people saying, oh, you're crazy for no, doing that anymore. They're like, no, that's like putting money in the bank now. People, sane sane people, and I say that as someone who I don't think it's insane, but like normal people look at that and say. Prior to COVID, they would have said, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? I can just go to the grocery store. I can go to Whole Foods if I want my organic produce. Now people look at that and they're like, oh, COVID happened. I should think about that. You yeah. Have, you have space for me to come move out there? Like, yeah. <laughs> I think there has been a lot of, uh, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing that niche, uh, you know, fresh produce space pop up in agriculture or not only fresh produce but like canned items and uh, dried goods and stuff just because people realize oh whoa the system can break down very rapidly and I can't uh, feed my family and so with that they've uh, not only begin to try to adapt for that situation to happen they've they've also looked for alternatives in case the situation does happen so they have a plan yep and so there's a real opportunity i'll end it with this there's a real opportunity for people starting out okay group one if you're anxious about where your food comes from you don't know anything about food guys there are farmers out there that you can trust and have these conversations with who actually probably want to dialogue about it with you more than you think they are out there and if you can't find them ask someone on the internet they'll point you in the right direction it's 2023 guys you don't have to just just google it go on instagram go on tiktok you'll find people where you can learn things from and learn to trust people if you're a producer you have an excellent opportunity to not only have a really good opportunity for your farm as a business and also as like a generational entity to continue to grow that and continue to improve on that you have the opportunity to build trust with a population that deeply distrusts the industry right now they people want to know i am get told that all the time when i talk about my business and the purpose of it they're like that is really cool i want to learn more about farming why because they don't know and they're curious or they're anxious and people want to know that so you have the opportunity to build that trust with the consumer just don't be a jerk about it you know be kind be tactful that's okay third if you are currently in the uh, middle of trying to transition from either being a conventional farm exclusively to more consumer-based products or vice versa, like, hey, you've kind of been hobby farming for a while. You want to jump into the the corporate scale farm. You know, you want to up the game. You want to go full-time. Take the leap. Just do it. Like, I, I, I say this as someone who isn't, <laughs> isn't currently farming but has started their own business and has taken on risk. I'm two years into this now, and I'm very thankful I did it. And at the very least, you won't live with thinking, I wish I had tried that. Just do it. If you don't own farmland yet, and you live near farmland, the USDA and the, uh, what is it, farm credit, will finance a piece of farmland 
if it is reasonable and you can afford it. You can start farming. It's very hard. It is very expensive. But chances are you can find a piece of land to start out farming on. And especially if you went into that niche market, you might actually be able to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Sec- second of all, if you don't know what you're doing and you're scared, there's people out there who will teach you and there are neighbors who say, I might not. There, there are lots of old guys without kids out there who say, I want people to take over my operation one day because I would rather have someone take that over than to sell it or to have my kids who don't want to farm sell it. There are guys out there. I have met more than one who have said, I would rather give my land to someone at a fair discounted price than sell it for auction price because I care about the family farm. They yeah. exist, they're out there, and they want it to happen. Okay, guys? <laughs> so, they are. There, there is a bunch of, uh, of aging farmers that are looking for succession plans, you know. So is it, uh, you know, against the realm of possibility that you can find a generational farmer that's ready to retire? No, it's definitely not. Um, those opportunities are out there if you're willing to beat the bushes and work hard. Um, and I'm going to echo your sentiments that uh, there is a huge opportunity over the next decade uh, for expansion of, you know, direct consumer goods from these farms. And I would like to challenge uh, if you're a farm similar to this one uh, to begin your thought process of how you tradition or how do you, how do you transition at least a portion of your production into that space over the next decade? I think it's going to be uh, crucial for all of us to diversify our income stream solely away from just the corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, wheat rotation into some different uh, types of crops and into some different types of production uh, for us all to remain uh, relevant in the space and just ultimately for the industry to grow as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys have questions or are interested in doing it and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know how to market this stuff, I, I will say get a hold of me on Instagram uh, or through my website. I, will, I tell people this all the time. I am very busy, but I always have time. Um, I am always busy. I always have something going on, but I always have time and I try to pick up my phone every chance I get. If you have questions and you need encouragement or you're like, I don't know, I don't know how to start this. I don't know how to reach consumers. I don't know a lick about growing crops enough to actually tell you how to do it properly. What I do know how to tell you is how to reach people and how to engage with your community. I'm very passionate about that stuff. Seriously, I say this authentically. If anyone's listening is like, I think I want to try that, just call me. I'll pick up my phone. So you can find my phone number. It's actually way easier than it. Guys, it's really easy to get a hold of people. If you don't have to try very hard, just message them. They will respond at some point. You know, maybe not like Elon Musk or Joe Rogan. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> but but you can get a hold of them. So, okay, we got we to gotta stop. We're going to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, like, share, and subscribe. We appreciate your support. And, um, thanks for listening to us. Yeah, thanks for listening to the Agri-Tool.